Hello and welcome to Ocean Matters from the Bertarelli Foundation. I'm Helen Cheresky. The blue of our blue planet is Earth's defining feature, an ocean engine that keeps our planetary systems running. It's a complex system and the richness of underwater life is woven right through it all. Even better, all of that is directly connected to the world above water, to us humans and the world we see around us. In this episode, we're looking at seabirds, animals that are incredibly versatile. They can roam freely on land, in the air, and also underwater. They may not live entirely under the waves, but they do have a direct impact on what happens down there. To have a healthy ocean, you need healthy seabirds. And although, of course, they're worth protecting for their own sake, they're also important for ocean conservation. For many of us, the sound of the coast always includes the sound of a seabird, the crying of gulls, the cackling of gannets, or perhaps the cooing and chattering of a colony of shearwaters. But what makes a seabird different from other birds? These birds are voyagers, adapted to a life above the waves, but tethered to land by the need to breed. Most seabirds spend a huge proportion of their time soaring over the open ocean, sometimes travelling as much as 1,250 kilometres to search for food. When they come to land to breed, they form incredibly dense and distinctive colonies with hundreds or thousands of birds, often exposed to the worst of the ocean weather, but perfectly adapted to the harsh challenges of their life. But these impressive adventurers, capable of thriving in the worst conditions that the weather and the ocean have to throw at them, are in trouble. Seabirds are one of the most threatened groups of vertebrates on the globe, and it's because of us. Overfishing, the introduction of invasive species and plastic pollution are all taking their toll. Half of all seabird populations are declining, and one in three is threatened with global extinction. And as the seabirds suffer, the ocean suffers. This is particularly true for coral reefs, and studying seabirds in those areas can be a good indication of what's happening in the marine environment. In this episode of Ocean Matters, we'll be looking at the links between seabirds and the sea. How can seabirds help the ocean recover, and how can we help the seabirds? A lot of these seabirds have evolved without any predators. Like, they just haven't evolved the behaviours to actually defend themselves or their young. Seabirds are flying great distances away from islands, feeding in that environment, and then they're returning to the islands where they roost, and they're depositing huge amounts of nutrients. So this seabird nutrient input is actually enhancing the growth rate or the demographics of, of fish living on coral reefs. Researchers from the Bertarelli Foundation's Marine Science Programme visited the Chagos Archipelago in early 2020. But before expeditions were cut short due to the pandemic, Pete Carr, who's an expert on birds in the Chagos Archipelago, was able to explore a collection of islands in this marine protected area for a very special seabird. So we were dropped off by boat first thing this morning about 07.30. What we're hoping to find is red-footed boobies breeding on this island. Red-footed boobies, unusually, uh, on a global scale, have been steadily increasing over the last two decades in the Chagos Archipelago. In 2014, the first pair, probably for something like 150 years, were found breeding on this island complex. 
So we know there's one pair, or there has been one pair, and we've just found evidence that red-footed booby are still breeding here. We found one nest. It's in a dead cordia tree. Um, the nest looks like it's just finished breeding in that there's a scraggy looking scruffy individual red-footed booby sat just beside the nest. Looks like it's waiting for parents to come back to feed it. And there's an old nest right next to it with lots of guano all down the side. There's a little bit of guano on the branches beside it. And that's fairly concrete evidence that um, that bird's been breeding in that nest. So this is a different location from where the nest was found in 2014. So we're going to press on, but with hope that uh, the numbers of redfoot booby breeding in the Egmonts uh, are increasing as well. The Western Indian Ocean is home to around 19 million breeding pairs of seabirds of 30 species, making it a fantastically valuable home for tropical seabirds. I'm pleased to say that Pete went on to discover 32 breeding pairs of red-footed boobies that day. There's a bit of terminology to know here. The key areas for seabird breeding are called IBAs, and that stands for Important Bird and Biodiversity Areas. 12 of the 58 islands on the Chagos Archipelago have this IBA status, and a lot of work goes into understanding how seabirds are using the marine protected area. I spoke with Pete recently, and he kicked things off by sharing his huge enthusiasm for seabirds and why exactly he is such a fan. First of all, seabirds are just incredible. If you've been down the southern oceans and seen albatrosses gliding across the waves in, in storm force wind, and, and they, they don't even appear to notice the wind as you're clinging onto the rails of some research ship or, or tourist boat. So. They're magnificent to look at. Add on top of that, they're incredibly difficult to identify because most of the time they're whizzing past you, either on a headland in Cornwall looking for rarities there or, or in my case, in the Chagos Archipelago, standing on the brow of a ship surveying for seabirds. And then on top of that, they're really good indicators of the health of the oceans. And they're easier than most of the other similar uh, predator guilds around in that they're above the water and lots of them breeding colonies. So they're quite easy to tag and mark and research as a vehicle to understand what's happening in the oceans. I think the thing that I, I'm most envious when I look at a seabird is that they can swim and walk and fly. They have access to all three, and I think that's just amazing. Tell us a little bit about the seabirds on the Chagos Archipelago. So what, what species are there? How many are there? What are they doing there? There's 18 species that breed, and four of them breed in either regionally or internationally significant numbers. And they're tropical shearwater, red-footed booby, sooty tern, and lesser noddy. There are about 282,000 breeding pairs of seabirds of those 18 species. And if you think about that, if you turn that into an individual number, that's about a million seabirds out there when you include offspring and, and those that aren't of breeding age. 
Now, I just want to make sure our audience has a very clear picture of what we're talking about. So if you could just tell us what they look like. So let's start with a sooty tern. What does a sooty tern look like? Sooty tern is absolutely gorgeous. Jet ink black with crystal white underparts. And it's the most agile, dainty flyer that you could possibly see. L L Lesser Noddy is like a beautiful chocolate coloured puppy with a blisteringly white forehead that is very very congregational and it will fly if you're near its nest like a moth in front of your face hovering in front of you very inquisitive birds wonderful to look at and red-footed boobies are very different colored all over the world so so the ones in the chagos archipelago are the best looking ones in the world because they're pure white with some little bits of black but when they come into breeding condition all their bare parts, their feet and their beak, flare up into these vivid coral red legs and this multicoloured rainbow bill. I, I don't start me with red-footed boobies. I can talk for hours and hours and hours, but they're inc and they're incredibly aggressive, incredibly aggressive. Well, it's always good to have something that is both very pretty and very aggressive. I think it's a good reminder that nature isn't always uh, cuddly. We're talking about numbers of seabirds here, and they are very large numbers of seabirds. So just walk us through a day. So say you're, you're in the Chagos Archipelago, you want to study how many seabirds there are, you wake up in the morning, what do you do to count seabirds? How does this work? It's one of the most fun days you could ever have. Nearly every seabird on every island in the Chagos nests on the perimeter of the island, so the first thing you will do is circumnavigate along the shore of the island, physically counting every nest that you see in every tree or bush. If there are dense colony of sooty terns, rather than just counting, you have to do a little bit of science so you can make an assessment of the total number involved. And you always have to bear in mind the safety of the bird, that you can't generally walk through a sooty tern colony without mass disturbance, without chicks running, with the possibility of breaking eggs. It sounds like a fabulous day out, I have to say. But it also sounds as though what you're describing might not have been touched very much by modern technology. So are there, are there technologies that can help speed up or add some more data to this process? For counting seabirds, we have trialled the use of drones. It's an emerging technology, but it does appear that it's a safe way providing they're used by experienced operators and you don't fly them too low or, or with species that are flighty. So that's one way of counting. Of course, if you're actually researching what the species is doing, there are lots and lots of tracking devices that are available nowadays. And that's one of the other avenues of research that we've been using in the Chagos Archipelago on red-footed booby and brown booby, looking at individual breeding birds and how they've been using the marine protected area for feeding and foraging. We have heard a lot in this podcast about marine protected areas and, and the ones in the Chagos Archipelago particularly. What do we know about how the seabirds are using them? Do they have opportunities within the marine protected areas that they might not otherwise? Well, that's one of the really interesting and important questions that all of the researchers are trying to answer. We've tracked red-footed boobies from three colonies from the south, north and west of the archipelago that when they're breeding, every bird that we've tracked, bar those that have lost their young, 
have remained entirely within the marine protected area, which should mean that they're not having any competition from fishing boats or poachers. So it's it's a real win-win situation in, the, in that the seabirds don't leave and they're in this super protected area. The other interesting thing we found, and this is the beauty of these super large marine protected areas, is that the birds from the southern colony don't feed in the same areas as the birds in the northern colony. It's big enough and there's enough prey around for these entire colonies not to have competition. That was Pete Carr. To find out about the latest seabird research, visit the Bertarelli Foundation's website, marine.science. It's a fundamental principle of planet Earth that the stuff of our planet, the atoms, are recycled again and again into so many different forms. Recycling is a critical part of every natural system. In ecosystems, nutrients are a critical currency because these are the raw materials of life and they need to be recycled from what came before. But it's not enough that these raw materials exist. They have to be brought to the places where life can use them. And this is where our seafaring feathered friends come in. I spoke to Professor Nick Graham from Lancaster University to learn more about their role in keeping coral reefs healthy. Well, seabirds connect different ecosystems. So they're feeding in the pelagic environment, which is the open ocean or the the surface waters of the open ocean where lots of other fish are feeding and living. So the seabirds are flying great distances away from islands, feeding in that environment. And then they're returning to the islands where they roost and they nest and they breed. And they're depositing huge amounts of energy in the form of nutrients onto those islands through through their droppings, they're fertilising island ecosystems and they're fertilising the nearshore marine ecosystem as well. So you put that very diplomatically. Well done. <laughs> so they, so they, feed, they feed in the open ocean, they poo on land, and then so they're basically transferring nutrients around. And then there's nutrients useful immediately in themselves because we, you know, certainly if you're, if you're living in the UK, you're putting manure in your garden, you want it to be well rotted because if you have the ammonia, that actually is quite damaging to your plants. So is it the case that the guano is, is it fertiliser straight away or is it, can you have too much of a good thing? What's key here is that the guano on the nutrients that are deposited by seabirds have a really nice balance of nitrogen and phosphorus. So if we think about fertiliser that's put on land, that tends to be phosphorus limited and very heavy in nitrogen. And that's often good for crops, but it's very bad news for lots of things in the ocean. So nutrient runoff from land, we typically think of of as quite a bad thing. But nutrient runoff from seabird guano has a nice balance of nitrogen and phosphorus, which various marine organisms really thrive on. There's been a number of studies showing how the biomass of plants on islands is, is a lot higher with seabirds present than when seabirds are absent. Well, let's come to the studies that you've done then. So just describe the overall, the big picture stuff that, where you're working in this area. The initial work we've been doing, we've been comparing islands that have introduced rats and islands that don't have introduced rats. You can step foot onto an island where there's rats present and the skies are empty. It's a very quiet place. There's next to no seabirds. You step foot onto an island where there's no rats and the skies are full of seabirds, often a great diversity of seabirds, and it's a really noisy place. 
Principally, the rats are predating on, on eggs. They'll also predate on, on chicks and sometimes adult birds. So the seabirds learn quite quickly to avoid islands that have rats present. So we were able to compare the ecology of six islands with rats and six islands with no rats and the nearshore marine environment. We found that where there's no rats present, there's up to 750 times more seabirds and that these seabirds are depositing about 250 times more nutrients or more nitrogen onto those islands. Well, it's a really, it's a really interesting example of how, uh, how interlinked everything is. You know, this is, we start from the ocean and that takes you to seabirds and then the seabirds depend on the rats. And I have to confess that when I started hosting this podcast, I never thought I would be discussing rats. So there's a nice healthy island. It's got lots of seabirds. They're bringing their guano back. They're fertilizing, you know, the island and that's running into the sea and you've got a nice balanced system. The rats turn up, the birds go away. How does that impact everything else? Well, based on our comparison between islands with and without rats, where there's no rats, the nutrients are leaching off the islands and we're detecting higher levels of nutrients in sponges that are filter feeding in the nearshore laguna habitats in macroalgae. And we're also finding higher levels of nutrients in turf algae, uh, quite a long way offshore. We're talking on the reef crest here, so 250 metres away from the island where the water's mixing with, with, with deeper lagoonal habitat water now, and in the mussel of fish that are feeding on that turf algae. And we've managed to show that if you look at the whole fish community, there's about 50% more biomass. Now, biomass is the weight of fish, and those fish provide really important processes or functions that keep the reef healthy. What's really exciting, I think, and, and this is a study that, that I didn't do myself, it was done by... Candida Savage from New Zealand, she was working in Fiji, she transplanted corals between islands with and without seabirds. And she found that when she transplanted corals into lagoons of islands with seabirds compared to islands with rats, that those corals were growing four times faster when they were adjacent to islands with seabirds. So these seabird nutrients are not only affecting the growth rate of fish, they're also affecting the growth rates of corals. And that's really exciting when we think about the the need for coral reefs to be bouncing back and recovering as fast as possible between these, these coral bleaching events. It's clear that if we protect our seabirds, we're also protecting the larger marine environment and the cycle continues. This is the sound of seabirds living on Gough Island in the South Atlantic Ocean, recorded by Rolf Daling at the RSPB. This is considered to be one of the most important seabird nesting places in the world, but today it's under threat. We humans are an adventurous and inquisitive species, and we've used ships for centuries to move ourselves around the Earth, but those ships didn't just carry humans. Some of the other travellers were invited, like pigs and dogs. Some just tagged along, like mice and rats. But all of them were capable of escaping on foreign lands, of thriving in native ecosystems, and of becoming highly destructive invasive species. This isn't just a historical problem, it's still happening today. Without natural predators, these invaders run riot, and seabirds in their dense coastal colonies, unprotected, suffer the consequences. Invasive species might prey on eggs and young chicks, or even adults, 
and the seabirds are defenceless. Natural predators can't help, so the only solution is removal. And that is a massive task. But rats have been successfully eliminated from over 500 islands, including South Georgia in the South Atlantic. This is a mountainous and inaccessible island, but it's one that's incredibly important for seabirds. Sarah Havery, the Senior Species Recovery Officer at the RSPB, explained to me how the rat eradication programme worked. As an example of a successful eradication project, it doesn't get much more impressive than the rat eradication from South Georgia. Um, So this huge operation was led by South Georgia Heritage Trust and the South Georgia government. And it commenced in 2011, and it was the largest ever rat eradication attempted over a colossal area, which was greater than 100,000 hectares. So... Run us through a day of rat eradication on South Georgia. You, there is a helicopter and there is a big pile of rodenticide. What happens next? Okay, so the team are actually based in um, on a camp. So they've got all their tents set up. They've got the helicopter enclosure all, all ready. And what they do is they have this thing called a hopper, um, which is this metal contraption, which is actually hung below the helicopter. And it's full of this these rodenticide pellets. So they're small green cylindrical pellets, basically. Um, and they all contain that anticoagulant rodenticide. So the, the hopper is all loaded, it's attached to the helicopter, and the pilot takes it up, and they have a GPS on the helicopter, and they follow the lines to make sure that they cover every key area across the island to make sure that every rat present is, is exposed to it effectively. So they're basically colouring in the map. Yeah, yeah. And the way this hopper works is it kind of spins round, and so it's spraying it out and, and to make sure that it's got even coverage. And if they they go back and they check on the computer, their GPS lines, and if there's any areas that they think, actually, we need to go back and and cover that a bit more, then the next day they'll go over and and maybe do a double load in that area if they feel it's needed. And we're talking about putting what is effectively poison into the natural environment. It's clearly very bad for rats, but is it very bad for other things as well? What are the side effects? Yeah, that's a really important point, Helen. I mean, non-target impact is an incredibly important aspect of any eradication project. We must make sure in any eradication project that the benefits clearly outweigh the costs. When you're looking at your island biodiversity, there might be native mammals, for example, that need to be considered, or there could be scavenging bird species on on the island, which will hoover up any carcasses um, and therefore might get a lethal dose of the rodenticide. So for South Georgia example, they did have some non-target impacts with giant petrels scavenging some of the, the rodent carcasses. So they did have some species, unfortunately, have losses of individuals, but overall, the benefits clearly outweighed the costs, and they found that the populations of those species did bounce back just after a few years. And does this stuff last in the environment? I mean, does it, does it degrade quite quickly or does it hang around? Yeah, it's, it's completely biodegradable, so it will, it will basically break down, and it breaks down in water. Um, so somewhere as wet as South Georgia, it will break down uh, very quickly. With eradications, the idea is that that it's just a a short, sharp load into the environment. Um, It's not a long, sustained input of of this poison um, into into such an important environment such as South Georgia. And what's the story been since since the rats were eradicated? I guess it's still early days, but what's happened there since? So since, since the eradication, there have been population increases for the South Georgia pipit, and they've started to recolonize their former habitat. 
Petrels and prions have also recolonized areas that have previously been lost from due to the rats. Um, and an amazing fact um, that came from South Georgia Heritage Trust, which is due to the size of the island and the sheer number of seabirds present, it is predicted that by removing the threats of invasive rats, there will be an additional 100 million more seabirds breeding on South Georgia in the future. That is an astonishing number. I mean, it, yeah. it's a small island. That's quite crowded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and everyone's watched South Georgia. Everyone thinks it's succeeded. Presumably someone's keeping an eye out for any rats that might have escaped all of this. Are other people learning this lesson? Is it being tried in other places? Yeah, absolutely. This practice of island eradication has been tried around the world. But a great example at the moment is around Gough Island in the South Atlantic. Efforts are currently underway, led by RSPB and the government of Tristan da Cunha, to restore this World Heritage Site um, through the eradication of mice. And if it's successful, it will prevent the deaths of over 2 million eggs and chicks each and every year on this important seabird island. And just to be very clear, for people who are listening, most of whom are probably not taking rats on holiday with them, <laughs> if you're an ordinary person just out and about, you're listening to this podcast, uh, even in Britain, and we do have a lot of seabirds and a lot of rats, what can individuals do to help protect seabirds? Yes, if you're visiting an island that you know have seabirds on, just make sure that you know you check your bags, check your boats before you arrive. Make sure you keep your stuff clean, um, especially vessels, like the cleaner, the better. If you're mooring somewhere, try not to moor overnight on an island. And disturbance is another key factor for seabirds. So minimizing that, especially kind of in coastal areas, keeping your dog under control. Like we all want to enjoy these, these spaces, particularly at the moment. But yeah, just trying to minimize dis disturbance for those seabird breeding colonies is, is really key. We've all got a part to play in in protecting these islands, so do report it if you see something that looks odd. Seabirds have a freedom that's hard to imagine. Skimming over the vast ocean surface, soaring on the wind and diving into the ocean to feed. They're perhaps one of the most direct living links between land, sea and air. But this also makes them vulnerable, because if there's a problem in any one of those domains, it's a threat to their life cycle. Next time I see a seabird, I think I'll see it differently. It's a living connection, and if we want to protect our ecosystems, protecting the connections is at least as important as protecting individual species. They're also such impressive animals in their own right. Protecting seabirds is a critical part of protecting our ocean, and it's been so heartening to hear in this episode that so much progress is being made. But there is plenty more still to do. Thank you to Pete Carr, Professor Nick Graham and Sarah Havery. Next time on Ocean Matters, we'll be wading through plastic and meeting the scientists that are trying to remove it from our seas. Ocean Matters is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. If you have a moment, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe now so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. <laughs>